um, and there will be childcare provided as well. And then uh, we have a quick announcement before uh, our scripture reading. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Sean. I'm one of the elders here at Watermark, and I just want to take a little bit of time this morning. Uh, you know, we have been going for a long time now. Watermark has gone through a lot of different milestones. We were at the Springs Theater. Uh, we got this building, which was awesome. Then a few years later, we got uh, we went from one service to two services, which was another big step forward. And, uh, you know, all these things are just to, to help us to reach more in the community, be able to do more to spread the word of God. And uh, we're excited today to announce that we are adding two more folks to the staff of Watermark. So Tommy's been carrying this load, you know, pastorally by himself for a long time. Uh, We are excited to be adding a director of outreach, or a director of community, and a director of discipleship in part-time roles that will be, you know, supplementing the the pastoral staff here at Watermark. Uh, Just to give you a little idea of what they're going to be doing, uh, the director of discipleship will really be focused on Uh, helping the house church leaders, helping the other leaders of Watermark just grow in their abilities, be able to, you know, uh, you know, mature in their ability to lead and, and, and finding new and upcoming leaders as well. Uh, that's what the director of discipleship will really be focused on. And then the director of community will really be focused on missions. Uh, they will be focused on outreach, connecting with other groups throughout the Tampa Bay area, and just, you know, welcoming people and making them feel a part of the community here at Watermark. So uh, without further ado, I want to introduce Mickey, who is going to be our director of community, Mickey Holm. And then uh, Sam Lee is going to be our director of discipleship. So you've probably seen these guys. So we went through a long process. You know, it's been months of planning and just praying and and looking for the resources to be able to make this happen. And uh, then once we had the resources, we got a whole application process started, about six weeks of interviews and applications, went through about three rounds of interviews. Uh, But we are really excited to have Mickey and Sam be joining our team. So Get together with them, say hi. I'm going to be posting some things on the city about more what their roles are going to be, but we are really excited to have them, so make them feel welcome, and uh, we're just excited about this. So thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, 37 through 10, 4. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who betrayed him, sorry. <laughs> All right, what's going on? Oh, ooh, good. Um, glad you're here, too. Glad everybody, you're the people who, you didn't make as, probably as good choices as the 9 o'clock service did yesterday. On Cinco de Mayo, but I'm glad you're here. And some of you felt like you had to come to church. Yes, you did. Um, so yeah, I want to thank the governing board and the elders. Like they did 
they did a lot of work. Like, I'm not an organized person at all. Here's my, here's my notes. Like, it's not, I'm not organized. Um, and, uh, and they, they, they have invented over the years an entire hiring system and did all these interviews and everything. And it was great. Um, just to watch the whole system work. It was fun. It was fun. Um, and, and it's funny that I realized the other day that we have like nine, nine staff and these are our first two men we've hired. <laughs> it's great. Anyways, um, Okay, so um, okay, so here's what we're doing today. We're talking about, surprisingly, like I've never done a sermon on this, but we're doing, I'm talking about evangelism, actually. Um, and um, so I'm talking about that first off, and we'll get into that, the, the model that, that was used here um, in Matthew. And then, and then we're going to talk about sort of the, the 12, the sending of the 12, um, why Jesus chose who he chose, what this means, what we can glean from all of this. Um, and... Um, but on, so th- that's like sort of the, the main notes I'll be hitting, but there's like a base note of this whole sermon, which is basically centered on, uh, interpretation of the scriptures, um, and how you interpret the scriptures and, um, basically the lenses with which people oftentimes come to the scriptures and are looking for exactly what they want to see. And when you do that, seek and you shall find, right? So, um, we're going to talk a bit about that, um, near the end. So, um, yeah, hopefully this should, should go well. Okay, so uh, let's pray and uh, we'll, we'll do the thing, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. And uh, I ask right now that you would give us rest and peace. I ask that the things that have been distracting us throughout our week um, for the moment would disappear. They'll be there when we're done here. Um, but maybe we'll have some new perspective and maybe we'll be able to interact with them differently. I ask for wisdom. I ask for understanding and knowledge. I ask for, um, <clears throat> right now, maybe the supernatural ability to look, at, to look inwards inside ourselves, to grasp um, the things going on deep in our soul that you might be speaking to, and uh, give us some of maybe what we've been missing, um, that peace that we've been overlooking. Um, reveal that to us. I lift up those who are struggling with health issues in this room, I ask that you would grant them healing and you would grant them um, hope and peace. I lift up those struggling financially. Um, I ask that you would give them peace as well and give them uh, understanding and patience. Um, I lift up those who are maybe struggling with doubt and um, I ask that you would give them understanding, give them um, the ability to sort of stick it out and just to sit in it for a while and allow themselves to be poured into by you and by your people. Um, and, then, and then reveal to them who you are and what you want with us. Thank you for this place. In your name, amen. Okay, so this is, this passage, Matthew nine thirty-seven to 10, 4, is, is the, it's sort of the birth of missions. Um, the book of Matthew, I've talked about this before, a quick refresher. The book of Matthew was not necessarily written by Matthew himself. Uh, it was, there was, Matthew was a pastor of the Matthewan community. This book was likely written uh, in sort of in concert with his people. Um, whether or not he had a big hand in it or not, or whether or not he was the main driver for the writing of this text, we don't know. All we know is um, that we know the sources that they kind of used to pull from. We know that Matthew was the leader of the community. And we know that they ordered the text in a specific way to inform the future church, us, who would be reading this text. Um, so 
here we have in this text, we have sort of, um, sort of a, an underlining idea of what exactly um, missions is, what missionaries are, what they should be doing, the goal of missions in, in the Christian church. Missions all goes back to sort of this text, and believe it or not, people don't realize this, um, Christian missions, missionary work, all of that, uh, directly stems from the Jewish rabbinical model, uh, which is obviously on display here in this passage, and we're going to talk about that. So basically, um, the rabbinical model started with a, um, someone who had been trained by a rabbi their whole life, and it's, they started right about the age of 30 or so, which is why Jesus' ministry starts at this age, um, because he's now a full-on rabbi, um, and he calls these these disciples, they're called Talmudim. He calls them as his disciples. Um, and in the rabbinical model, you would call some disciples and they would follow you for a specific amount of time, usually a few years. Uh, they would watch you. They would listen to you. You would go about your ministry and they would be there observing everything, memorizing everything, quoting the scripture with you the whole time. Um, and at some point you would decide, these kids are ready and you would send them out to another city. And you would say something to the effect of, go ye into this place or that place and teach them about these ideas um, and immerse them in my teachings, uh, baptize them in my teachings. Jesus uses all this rabbinical language at the end of Matthew when he um, proclaims the Great Commission, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel. Um, he tells them specifically to go, who to go to. Um, and then he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not, I would argue, a proclamation to while you're dunking people say certain words. It is, it is a, a command to like immerse them in, in who God is, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the name of Christ, the ideas that, um, that Jesus has been teaching them. So um, when we go to the text and we see how the book of Matthew is set up, again, it's not set up chronologically. The book of Matthew is set up theologically. Ideas are, are, are pushed together um, and rearranged and put together to create a narrative for us to glean from. So when we, I showed this last week, I'm going to refresh you on it a little bit. So it starts off like this. At the beginning, at, at the end of Matthew chapter four, Jesus calls his disciples. It's the rabbinical model. He calls his disciples. Then there is like a narrator in the text that says, and Jesus uh, went from this town to this town to this town. And they brought him all who were sick and he healed them. Um, and he taught and preached the kingdom of God. Then after it says what he was going to do, uh, the text has Jesus doing all these things. He has the teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, all the healings that he did, all the reconciliation between these um, sort of tribes and factions. And then there's a pause where the exact same narration in 423 is said one more time, and then the disciples are sent. In other words, the disciples of Jesus were sent out to do exactly what Jesus was doing. Now, when a disciple went into a town um, to preach his rabbi's sort of um, teachings, uh, he, he didn't strive to teach the things of the rabbi or to teach the things that he had been taught by the rabbi. His main goal was to be the rabbi. His main goal was to walk like the rabbi, to talk like the rabbi, to use the same mannerisms and voice inflections and all of it to accurately portray what it was like if, there, if his rabbi was standing right there in front of you. Um, Paul uses this language for the church. When Paul goes places, he says, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are here as the presence of Jesus in your midst. He calls the church this as well. Um, and so um, what we have here is um, the rabbinical model being laid out in the book of Matthew from Matthew chapter four, all the way to chapter nine. 
Um, and it is modeling something that, that, that Matthew's audience obviously would have known being a Jewish Christian audience. So from this, if we look at this, we can gleam sort of the things that Jesus did, the mission of Christ, Jesus' evangelistic methods, and they're all captured right here between verse chapter 4 and chapter 10. Um, this is Jesus and the entirety of Jesus' evangelistic work, okay? And you would copy this and you would paste it right over here for what the disciples are supposed to do. So this tells us a few things. If you go through these passages, there's a, I, I laid out six things that you can sort of gleam uh, from Jesus' work, um, what Jesus' mission was and how he did his evangelistic work. And I would argue, um, if you're going to do missions work, if you're going to call yourself a missionary, if you're going to launch off and do these things, these are the things that will be included in those things. Because this is exactly what Jesus did and commanded his disciples to go do. It is exactly what the Matthew community has laid out for us to do. So thing one, um, it, it, it includes interactions with the poor, the persecuted, destitute, the meek, and the failures. This is obvious. In the ancient world, there was this overarching idea that it, and this is, this is a lot of people still think this way today, that the rich and the popular and the, the higher class were blessed by God. They were blessed. Um, my wife tells a story about how she used to ride to school with this family who was like super, super rich. And she once, when she was very little, said, are you rich? And they said, we're not rich, we're blessed. So like the idea, <laughs> they were Southern. Um, so the idea that you were rich um, and of high social class was the idea that you were blessed in the ancient world. Um, and those at the bottom were not blessed by God. They had done something wrong to earn their status. And so Jesus gathers them all together and he looks at them and he says, blessed are the poor. And everyone gasps. He's like, no, I think, I think you are just as blessed as I think. I think um, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the sinners. By the way, rain was a, is a good thing in the ancient world. We're like, oh, rain, small flying water is bad. It was good. It helped your crops grow. Um, and so he said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which is absolutely, that, it's not a word that means like, like sad. It's, it's literally a Greek phrase. It was like slang for like, dead poor. They have nothing. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are not abandoned. You are loved. Um, And then it goes on and on saying all these things. Um, It includes sharing meals with them, setting the table for those of lower status and inviting them to sit down and sharing a meal with them. We've talked about this a lot. This is a huge deal in the ancient world to do anything like this. Um, It involves teaching them God has accepted them, that the church accepts them as well. By accepting them into the church, we are accepting them into the body of Christ, into the kingdom. Like, this is how this goes. So, um, that's the first thing. The second thing um, that Jesus did is he worked on replacing outward morality with inward compassion. Um, Instead of just not sinning against others, the idea was to replace that with loving others, having compassion in your heart and connection with them. Um, If you love someone, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to cheat on them. You're not going to shoot them. You're not going to buy them for sex. This is um, at the heart of Jesus' message was um, was stop trying to, to not sin and start loving the people around you and these things will naturally fall in line themselves. So it's replacing morality with compassion and love for other people the same way that God did for us. He, at one point, um, he, first we have the law and we're all trying to do the right thing and Jesus enters in and says, it was never about doing the right thing. It was about a heart issue at the very center of who you are. He says, there is a, there is, um, a righteousness that's higher than that of the Pharisees and it's this, okay? So um, the third thing, uh, administering shalom. This is a Jewish word which means rest. It means peace. It means things being as they should be. 
It is working to make things exactly as they should be. And here's what I mean. In chapter 6, uh, verse 5 through 14, Jesus talks about prayer, um, regular inward meditation, and, and focusing on the things of God. And speaking to God about the things that you would like to see in the world. Refocusing your heart and your mind on, on the blessings and the desire of the kingdom for the world. Rather than sitting and complaining about all the problems in the world. Okay, so there's this regular focusing your heart on the things of God. Praying, communication with God. Um, and then there is contentment. Jesus in, in, chapter, in chapter 6 verses 16 through 34 talks about finding joy. Not intangible things. Not worrying about where your next meal is going to come from. Not worrying about the clothes. Not worrying about money. But finding your joy and rest in the things that God has given you. Relationships and love and other people. Um, divine love. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Find these things being the center of your life. Um, and, then, and then in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Giving to the needy. When you see someone who is not at, at rest. Things are not as they should be. You, you work to make them as they should be. In their life. Um, Thing number four, reconciliation and guidance towards that reconciliation. Um, in, in chapter seven, he talks about not judging people, about seeking the good in people, about societal trajectory. Jesus has this long speech about, about how there's two paths and, and one of them is, is big and wide and most of the people in the world are on it. It, has, it's, um, it ends in destruction, but there's this other path, the path of the kingdom of God and it's difficult and the road is windy and rocky and it's thin and narrow and there's a very small gate when you get there, but it leads to life. And he's offering this whole other way, which is following the, the teachings of himself, of Christ. Um, it is this whole other thing, which is harder, but in the end it brings about life. And let's be honest, the way the world normally goes without thinking, just walking down the road, um, we get very tribal, we get angry, we get violent, and we destroy ourselves. It ends in destruction. Um, we don't tend to make good decisions. We are like sheep without a shepherd. Um, and so there's this other path. So there's this trajectory. It's this guidance uh, in the world. Um, and then the fifth thing is healing and restoration. Jesus, all through chapter 9, um, he's going person to person who is sick and working for their healing, making them whole again. He's healing lepers and reconciling with people. He is, um, he is uh, he's healing the centurion's daughter earlier on um, and then reconciling this centurion with the elders, he's pronouncing unclean people clean and reconciling them to people who, who had banished them for their uncleanliness. So there is this work to make people whole again and to reconcile them with people whom they have been broken from. And the last and possibly most important thing is the proclamation of the kingdom. That there is a new king that is ruling now. Um, and that there is a new kingdom which you can be a part of now. So um, the reason Matthew and his church laid out all of this was to say, Jesus calls his disciples. Here's all the things that Jesus, Jesus did. All of these things. And then he sends them out to do all of these things. Um, this is, I, I love the way this is written because they, it's, they knew that churches in the future, possibly a church 2,000 years from then in the Bay Area of Tampa would be sitting, reading their writing and they're saying, now I don't want you to get off track with this. This is how you preach the gospel. This is how it works. This is how evangelism works. This was the mission of Jesus. And this is how we did our work. And I, I, I don't want you to miss this. And they're like, Church of Watermark, Tampa. This is how you do this. Okay? And they're calling you to all of these things. So, um, 
They would say, uh, Matthew taught it to us. Matthew learned it from Jesus. We are now teaching it to you. And so now by gathering together and to study these scriptures, we find ourselves sort of disciples of the disciples of the rabbi. It's this chain that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. Um, so this, I believe, should inform how we think about evangelism. Um, I was raised with a specific sort of um, idea of evangelism. By the way, evangelism comes from this Greek word, euangelion. Everyone say, euangelion. Okay, so this is a word that simply translated means good news. Um, Christians did not make up this word. We stole it from the Roman Empire. Um, they used to go and proclaim the gospel of Rome, the good news, that the kingdom of, of the emperor, the king, was spreading, and they would walk, find another city that they wanted to make Roman, and they would walk into that city with their armies and their chariots and their horses and their swords, and they would say, good news! What? You're Roman now. And they're like, well, we don't want to be Roman. And then they would all just be killed. Um, so usually they were like, okay, sounds good to us. Um, and this is how, so they would move through the streets then proclaiming the gospel of Rome, that the emperor, the king of Rome, um, has brought peace to a new area. Um, the victory has been won, and, um, and eventually they believed peace would come to the whole world at the end of a sword, okay? And so the Christians say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they would say, uh, we don't believe peace enters into the world by the sword. We believe it enters into the world by the cross. This is how peace enters into the world. And so they responded completely differently than, than everyone else did. And they, and they decided that, they, um, that Jesus was king and that they were part of the kingdom of Christ, um, that they were citizens in his kingdom. And all of this language is like Roman language usurped by the Christians um, to speak of how they were living, that there's nothing that you could do um, uh, to convince them that anyone else is Lord and that they should at any point do anything which would commandeer sort of their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Um, they put their faith, by the word faith, is this word pistis, which is translated to allegiance. They put their allegiance and their faith in Jesus, that his way was right and they were going to follow him. So this is what it meant. Um, and so... Evangelism, when I was growing up, though, um, it was an interesting thing. Because at some point in the 1800s, um, this whole new way of like evangelizing was invented, where they, there was just this thing. You would just pray a sinner's prayer. And I had people ask me, when are you going to do an altar call? Why don't you do altar calls? Um, so the altar call was invented by a man named Phineas. Uh, Finley, I'm sorry, a man whose last name was Finley. I forget his first name, and I'm not even trying to look it up. Finley. Um, in the early 1800s, he was an abolitionist. And he decided that if you were going to become a follower of Jesus, then you needed to put some hands and feet and legs to this thing. And so at the front of the, at the, front of the, of the, the, the church where he was preaching, he had a sign-up to join the abolitionist movement. And so if you wanted to become a convert and join the church and become a follower of Jesus, you had to come forward and put your name um, on the, on, the, on the paper that says, yes, I'm, I'm joining the abolitionist movement and we're going to free the slaves because this is what Jesus does. He frees people. So instantly, he wanted to get them involved in freedom work, setting people free because this is what Jesus does, always has done, always will do. So this is where the altar call started. At some point, the altar call became this thing where like you come up and you pray a prayer and you mentally ascend. You, they call it the sinner's prayer. And so the good news has turned into this thing where like, the entire point of Christianity, when I was growing up, to me, my understanding of it was um, there was good news that started with really bad news that, like, I was in a really bad situation. And someone told me, do you, 
you're in a really bad situation. You were born into a really, really bad situation and you must pray this sinner's prayer and then spend the rest of your life telling everyone else they were born into a bad situation and they must pray the prayer and then they will spend their life telling everyone else they're born into a bad situation and praying the prayer. And the whole thing seemed weird to me, like a cycle, like monotonous. It didn't have any purpose and there was no end game. Like it didn't really help anything and change anyone. It was just sort of this like, I'm terrified, so I'm praying this prayer. It's not hard to terrify children. I was a child. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's easy. Like, um, and so we all came up with threw a stick in the fire. We're like, yes, of course. Now, that is, at some point, like I, it even became this thing where like, if they, I was convinced like, if you're, all, if you're like on an airplane or like sitting next to someone else at some sporting event or something, you have to. You have to bring this up and you have to talk to them and your, your end goal is to get them to pray the sinner's prayer and that's it. That's the end goal. And there was always this sort of missing, sort of missing piece. Um, and nothing that Jesus did that the writer of Matthew like writes out, nothing that's in there was actually a part of what I was doing. When I talked about the kingdom of God, what I meant was it was somewhere else and it was, I called it heaven and it was somewhere else and heaven and the kingdom were synonymous and that's, it's right, but that's wrong at the same time because the kingdom of God is here and it's, it's, you can be a part of it now. And, and all of that was just not a part of the conversation. It was this very, um, the Bible, the entirety of the scriptures had been whittled down to like five little points. You didn't need to read it. Uh, we put it in a little pamphlet, called it a tract. We put it on the table. We didn't want to tip the waitress, so we put it on the table, right? Um, and she could read that and, and it was all there, but it, it's not all there. There's all kinds of stuff missing. There's all kinds of stuff missing. So if I, I'm going to give you what I would argue is a pretty adequate definition. Like this is all debatable, but an adequate definition of what evangelism is, how it should work today. Uh, if, If I were to say, I would say it is the proclamation of a new king and a new kingdom while working to reverse the effects of the old kingdoms. This is what I would argue. It is going to people who are, in, who are, who are beaten down by the kingdoms that they, um, kingdoms of the world, the ones in which we all live. And you are told you are not good enough. You are told um, you're, you're, you're not smart enough. You're, you're voting wrong. You're too fat. You're too stupid. You're lazy. You are, you are the problem. You are this and that. And we all have this shame and this guilt that the world is putting upon us because there is, everyone's engaging in things the way that they ought not to in a selfish way apart from King Jesus, okay? And you go into these places and there's people who are hurting, lost, lonely, those who don't measure up, those who have failed, the poor, the frustrated, the sick, the kicked out, divorced, addicted, homeless, unfulfilled, and unloved, and saying, by the way, there is a new kingdom. It is at hand. It is available to you now. You don't have to be a part of this anymore. There is a new way. There's a new Lord, King Jesus. And, and, and here's, how, here's how Jesus became king. And here's what this means. And here's where I believe this ends. And it's beautiful. That is a vastly different message than hey, did you know you're losing a game? That is vastly different. And while you're, while you're communicating with them this kingdom, you are working to free them and reverse the facts of the earthly kingdoms. Okay? Um, you're, you're working for their, their healing, for their health, emotional, physical, spiritual health. You are, you are feeding the poor. You are lifting up the downtrodden. You are welcoming people in. And the kingdom is represented by the church. People enter the kingdom. We are like... This is a small sort of like battlefront little regime of the kingdom right here. And we welcome all those in who have been rejected. We welcome everyone. Just come in. Yes, join the kingdom. Yes, there's a new king and you can hear all about this king. And and we follow this king. And here's how we believe that this king makes things whole again. 
And we believe this king, through the work that he did and the pouring out of his, of his, of his, of his blood and a breaking of his body can bring salvation to everyone in every situation. Right down to the very depths of your soul. And we believe this king will reign forever. If you follow him here, you will follow him forever. And this is how this goes. This is the proclamation of the king. This is what evangelical, uh, evangelism is. By the way, the word evangelical was connected to this phrase. It's interesting how far things get off track. Um, so, um, the names of the 12 apostles are next because after, after the, 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 the writers of Matthew, they write this thing out and they say, here's the model of discipleship. Here's the model of evangelism. Here's what Jesus did. And here's what we do because of what Jesus did. Now, who are the ones that were sent out? And then they give us a small little summary of the names. So the narrator starts off and it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. And it just goes through and lists them all. Um, and a lot has been said and a lot has been like sort of, um, a lot of conclusions like found, like studying these names um, uh, of these men and their names and their number and their gender and all of that. Um, so I want to talk about all this right now, what we can glean from all of this. So first off, um, you may not know, Jesus didn't only have 12 disciples. He had an inner ring of 12 disciples. I've drawn this before and here it is. I'm recycling. I'm green, recycling slides. So um, Jesus had an inner circle of 12 disciples listed here in Matthew chapter 10, verse two. Luke 10 lists 72 other disciples made up of both men and women. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 15, six has 500 disciples that are listed. Um, and then later on, Luke six mentions um, 5,000 what are called followers. Probably just average churchgoers may be curious about the work of Christ and they're following and they don't fully get it. They don't fully understand, but they're following the teachings of Jesus, right? So there's like these stages and there's these inner rings. Um, and there's, there's, I've had people ask me, why is there 12 disciples? Why specifically this number? Why did Jesus choose who he chose? These are great questions and I love these questions and they're very revealing to us of, of the heart of Jesus. So first off, um, um, okay, the first thing you need to know about, about the first century and rabbis is that recognized rabbis needed to have at least 10 male disciples. If you didn't have 10 male disciples uh, in the Jewish world, you were not considered like a bona fide rabbi, all right? You weren't legit. So this is, um, Jesus had to choose at least 10 disciples and he chose specifically 12. So one of these one of the main reasons for this is, is uh, it's, it's just simply cultural, okay? So the second thing that you need to know about this is that 12 was a special number in the minds of the Jewish people. There were uh, 12 sons of Jacob. Um, there were 12 tribes of Israel, all separated into 12 regions. So Israel as a whole, um, under the kings, had 12 regions. And sometimes they were at war, and sometimes they were killing each other, and then it separated into two kingdoms. Um, and so... If you were to imagine, um, let's start from the beginning here. So you have, you, have, you have Abraham, Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons grow into the leaders of the heads of 12 tribes that are named after each of the sons. Um, they're all descendants of these sons. And picture this. They're in the wilderness, all 12 tribes wandering together. And they stop somewhere and they set up the temple, the tabernacle in the middle. Because they're going to stay here maybe for a few months or years or whatever. So they set up the tabernacle in the middle and then all 12 tribes gather around this tabernacle and set up camp around this tabernacle like, like a clock. Um, and imagine Jesus now sitting down to teach his disciples and he's Jewish and everything about rabbis had a message. Every little nuance had a message and was like a theological argument. So he sits down and he gathers 12 disciples, 12 boys 
And he gathers them, puts them all in a big circle around himself. Anyone, any Jewish rabbi walking by who sees this man standing in the middle of these, of these 12 disciples, right off the bat, they're like, okay. So part of his ministry is he believes that he's going to unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And he believes that somehow um, he's going to unite them under one king again. And this was the big dream, right? King David, we talked about this last week with all the circles, all the timelines. Um, King David was the one who united all of this at one point in time, united all of Israel and ruled over them. And Matthew is constantly referring to Jesus as a new King David. So this is the idea. This is why there's 12. It's a theological argument about what Jesus is doing here. He's here to reunite Israel again under one Lord and then even to go farther. And that's going to be talked about later. So there has also been a lot made about the gender of the disciples, how Jesus chose, um, um, Jesus chose all men. Um, I believe Jesus chose all boys for a reason. And this is the part where, um, and I say boys because they were likely, Peter was probably the oldest one when they were called and he was probably only like maybe 15. Um, so uh, people in, instantly in their mind think, oh, this is the part where he says, well, only men are supposed to be pastors. So that's why Jesus chose 12. I don't actually believe that. Um, and, and I'm going to talk about that argument right now because every time I hear people argue about how pastors are only supposed to be men, um, the, one of the main arguments they use is, well, Jesus chose 12 men disciples. Um, so first off, there's a reason Jesus chose men. Um, first off, Jesus chose boys because only boys were allowed to be disciples past the age of, of 13. There were no female disciples in those days who were over the age of 13. And if Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to teach these kids for, for three years, um, they have to all be men. Second, um, and this is an important one, only males were trusted as trustworthy sources of information in that day. Women were not considered, I'm sorry, they weren't considered um, trustworthy deliverers of information. They weren't allowed to be, um, women were specifically not allowed to give testimony in court for any reason. Um, this is how the world, the, the patriarchy thought about women in this day, um, that the only ones that can be trusted is men. And so this, is, this, this teaching, this work of Jesus requires a significant exchange of information. And if that information is going to be, is going to be exchanged to um, other men, then men are going to be the ones to deliver it to other men. And those men are going to deliver it to their people in their house, the, the, the women and children in their house. So part of this is God accommodating the situation of the day, but not leaving it that way because pretty quickly after the establishment of the church, um, you see Paul and you see the other apostles um, promoting women to all, all positions of leadership in the church. You see Phoebe um, representing Paul and preaching the book of Romans all through Rome at the five house churches there. You see um, Priscilla, likely the one who discipled Paul and taught Paul everything he knows about Jesus. Um, you see all these women, the book of Hebrews was, was likely um, written by Phoebe. Um, I would argue that, and I would, I would lay out some evidence for that. Um, and there's all kinds of women in the church who were leading the early church. Um, at this moment in time, this is what needed to happen. These are Jewish people they're going to reach. Um, by the way, that thing I showed you earlier with this, so the, the, the center circle, yes, these were all men. The second circle, the 72, were men and women. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, sends them out to Gentile territories. He sends out the men and women exactly the same, in exactly the same manner that he sends out the disciple boys. So he sends them all out equally just to different audiences. So Jesus does indeed send women as his disciples out to preach the gospel and to do his work, okay? 
Um, so pretty quickly, the whole argument begins to fall apart. Plus, if you're going to... Okay. If you're going to say that these men were some sort of precedent or paradigm for church leadership, there's a few things that you're ignoring. First off, if this is the precedent and the paradigm for church leadership, then not only must they all be men, they must all be Jewish. They must be, um, they must be um, oppressed minorities. Um, they must be um, basically failures because the fact that um, all of these kids were out fishing, tax collecting, all these things, um, that means that they had failed to become rabbis. At some point, they had a rabbi tell them, you're not good enough because every Jewish boy was studying to be a rabbi. At some point, the age of 12, 13, um, the rabbi tells them, you're not good enough. Go learn your father's trade. Every one of these boys were doing their father's trade. Jesus went to every one of them and said, you're going to be my disciple, which is why they dropped their nets and followed Jesus because they had a chance to follow Jesus, a rabbi. And they never had that before. It's all they wanted. So this is going to change your whole understanding of like how, um, how leaders of the church should be then because they must be poor, oppressed minorities and failures and, and not really be good students in their day um, as opposed to the general population of preachers you see today. Um, now, the last argument I would make about this is that the biggest evidence that I would argue is, is that, that this was never meant to be a picture of the early church leadership was quite simple. Um, the church didn't exist yet. Not for a while, the church didn't exist yet. So Jesus is not laying out an argument for church leadership in the future. Um, now, so again, what I said, when I talk about evangelism, and I say how we've gotten it wrong, and I talk about the understanding of the 12 disciples and how we've gotten it wrong. You can sense like at the base note, their underlining thing, there's this whole entire base note of a conversation about biblical interpretation going on. Um, biblical interpretation is very, very important. Um, let, me say, let me say something I, that I feel is very important. Um, when you interpret the Bible, and by the way, you are interpreting the Bible. Anyone who says they're not interpreting the Bible... It's literally interpreting the Bible every time they read it. Um, even they say, no, I, I, I just read it literally. That is an interpretation that was invented much later than the Bible was written, reading things literally. The, the scriptures, some parts were meant to be read literally and they kind of say and they kind of let you know in Jewish ways, oftentimes. Other, other passages are meant to be theological. Others are metaphorical. Others are parables. And there's a way that you should read it. Not, I would say not literally, but literately. Okay? Um, now, um, when you interpret the Bible, and everyone is interpreting the Bible when they read it, you have a choice to make. You can interpret the Bible in a way that sets people free, or you can choose to interpret the Bible in a way that enslaves them more. That is a choice that you actively make when you interpret the Bible. Oftentimes, if you grew up in a, in a tradition where the interpretations of the Bible were very enslaving, they were all about workspace, they were all about... Um, morality, and they were all about, here's what we look like and do. Here's what our tribe is. Um, oftentimes, um, you will choose, for extended periods of time, even into your adult years, you will, you will choose to keep interpreting it this way, and you'll be terrified to interpret it any other way. Um, Christendom is very, very big. And there is lively debate among all Christian scholars about every passage of Scripture, and it's all part of what we are supposed to do. And when you interpret scriptures, you can choose how you're going to interpret it. You really can. You can say, well, how has this been interpreted other ways? Um, and you can look over these things and you can hold them up 
and say, is this, is this the right thing? Is this, does the evidence point here? Does the evidence point here? And, and you can make honest decisions about how to interpret the scriptures. Um, this was going on in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were a part of a group that were interpreting the scriptures, their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, um, in a way that was very oppressive. And they were, people were very oppressed. This is how they were doing this. They were quoting the, the law of Moses everywhere, back and forth. They were just always, you're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. You're not sacrificing enough. You're not holy enough. You were doing everything, everything wrong. And then Jesus enters the scene and he takes the same scripture and he says, you have heard it said this, but I say this is what that actually meant. What Jesus is doing here, he's taking their interpretation of scriptures and he's turning it upside down and he's offering them a new interpretation. Um, and this is where the debate ensued. And it was perfectly fine to do this. This was part of the whole system. Um, and oftentimes there is a lens uh, through which you are reading, a lens that maybe you were given. Um, the lens that I was given as a kid at some point, it, it didn't work anymore. That lens was really good um, at inspiring fear in me, but it was never very good at inspiring compassion in my heart. And, and the scripture should inspire compassion and love and generosity. This is what it should do. If it is not doing that, if your interpretation of scripture is not making you love God and love people more, you are reading it wrong. I would stand by that statement. You are not reading it right. Um, if, you, if you were at a place where like, because I never want my words or my, like, how I, how I teach. I don't ever want that to discourage people from reading the Bible. And I found that sometimes it does. They're like, well, I, I don't understand. I didn't know that. And if I don't know that, then I can't even read the Bible because I don't even know how to read it now. Um, I'm not here to destroy how you read the Bible, okay? I'm here to give you a new lens through which to read it. Um, I, I want to supplement your reading. I want to um, say, go to a text and say, hey, here's something new you may not have seen before, okay? So that's something I want to do. If you, um, if you need guidance... Reach out to your elders. Reach out to, your, reach out to me. Reach out to your house church leader and say, uh, here's a book I, I would like to read in the scriptures. Um, do you have, what do you have to supplement this? Is there, is there some scholarly work? Is there some commentary? Is there something really, really approachable that I can read that'll supplement this? Or I, I am interested in these ideas. What can I read about these ideas? Um, and we want to help give you a lens. If your lens is broken, if it's no longer, if you can no longer see like a, um, a good loving God through it maybe it is time for you to deconstruct that lens and, and pick up something different and look at it from a different angle. We want to be here for that. If not, if, if you're fine, that's fine. I want us to be a diverse group of Christians, okay? I want to be a representation of worldwide Christianity in this room. Um, that's always been a goal of mine. Um, but I want to encourage you to reach out if you need guidance, if you need help. Um, so all of that being said, this is a big conversation about interpretation because there's ways that you can interpret Jesus' message. There's ways that you can interpret Jesus' choosing of his disciples and how he worked and what he did. Um, and if you were to look at this, um, when I look at this list, I don't see this like, I see something vastly different. What I see when I look at this list, I think there are, there are things that you can glean from this which are really, really important. Um, and it has to do with, when you take this all apart, you study who these, who these boys were, the lives that they came from. And there's a lot of work like this has been done. Um, you see several things. First off, uh, I'll just point out a couple here. So Matthew, the one who bears, who's this book, bears the name Matthew. Um, he was a tax collector. He was a collaborator. Think, um, think um, a Jewish man during the Holocaust who, who, for financial gain, helps the Nazis. That's a, a, a good explanation of what Matthew was for his own people. 
because he's a Jewish man and he's collaborating with the Roman government to oppress his own people and to profit off of it. And the Roman government eventually slaughtered them all. Okay? Now, he's a collaborator. On the other end, you have this guy, Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? I've talked about this before. Um, they were insurgent terrorists, Jewish ones. They, they believed that the entire structure of the temple was wrong and needed to be taken down. The Romans needed to be conquered and killed. So they would hide these like crooked daggers. They would hide them in their cloak and they would go into a crowd where maybe a Roman centurion or a guard was and they would, specifically centurions were the high, high-ranking ones. So they would go for them and they would go up and they would pull out the dagger and they would stick it in the Roman's side and they'd pull it out and they'd put it back and they'd sneak out of the crowd and they'd get away. Um, they were murderers. Eventually, they, they would move out. They, they would form the Essene people and they would move out into the desert and they're, they're the ones that wrote the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Scrolls. Um, but picture this. Jesus is calling disciples. The very first dinner, we're going to have table fellowship, right? And Jesus sets the table and he brings all these boys in and they sit down. And maybe Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the collaborator across the table from each other, looking at each other. Under any other circumstances, Simon would have murdered Matthew. I have no doubt about that. And scholars don't doubt that at all. Likely their first meeting was pretty awkward. Um, so what I see at the table fellowship of Jesus with his disciples that he chose, um, I see... I see a rabbi who believes that people can change and that reconciliation is possible and that he can take people to places that, that we would look at and say, well, that's a hopeless cause. You can't put these two people together. And he's like, I can, I will. I will unite them under one message, under one king, under one kingdom. And together they will individually, they will work together and then they will individually be martyred for my name's sake, both proclaiming the same message. By the way, all 12 of the disciples were eventually martyred except for one. They all died horrible deaths proclaiming the risen Lord is the king. So what you see at this table, it really is miraculous. That's a, that to me is a much better lesson than, well, they're all boys, so preachers should be men. Come on, like this is, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful way to read this. Now, um, another thing you see is that um, no one is too low. Again, these kids were all failures. And Jesus specifically chooses the failures to build his kingdom upon. Jesus really did believe that the poor were blessed too. And he puts legs to this thing. He believes that people can be lifted up and turned into these amazing bringers of light into the world. Anybody, no matter how low they were. Um, How often have we passed by people on the street who you just look at them and you're like, they're a mess. Maybe they're, maybe they're, they're on, they're on crack or whatever and, and they're just mumbling to themselves and you're like, well, they're not, that's all they're ever going to be. Jesus would say, are you kidding me? Did you see what I did? I believe people can change. We believe in resurrection. We believe people can be restored and made whole again and given new purpose in life. Um, and lastly, and to me this is really important, it, it speaks something about table fellowship because when we talk about communion, oftentimes communion, we say, well, it's the Lord's Supper. We, we come and uh, we, it's communion with God. The table, you know, you picture Jesus and you sitting together and he's serving you this meal. Um, The table, the communion table was never just Jesus and one person. It was Jesus and a whole bunch of people that were all different coming together under one king because the king rules the world. So um, communion is not just between you and God. It's between you and other people. 
And so your relationship with God and your relationship with people, they're all connected. And again, um, there's tons of places in Scripture that mention if you, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother or your sister, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. These things are connected. I would, I would argue that your relationship with God oftentimes um, can be summed up by your worst relationship with people. Like you, you likely um, need to be regularly working towards the reconciliation with other people because this is what the gospel demands. Setting the table, inviting them, the symbolism of body broken, blood poured out for the salvation, the reconciliation of all things to God. This is how this works. This is what this is. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead back and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot to be gleaned from every little passage in scripture. Um, everything that, that Jesus did. I, I think the Bible is one of the most amazing, beautiful books, um, collections, libraries of books ever, ever compiled. It is um, authoritative. It is life-changing. And I believe it contains the message of God, which has the ability to heal the entirety of the world. Okay. Um, heaven and earth coming together, making things whole again. So um, the communion table is a little picture of that. No matter who we are, no matter how much of a failure you are, no matter how holy your life is, uh, no matter how much um, sin and baggage you are carrying with you, we all come to the same table. We all receive the same thing. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the holy. Blessed are, blessed are you. Um, and so our communion servers can come on forward and we're going to take some time and, uh, and I'll pray and, and uh, we'll take some time with, with the Lord's Supper. You don't, um, you don't have to be a member here or anything like that, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from. Um, come to the table, take communion. It's two pieces, it's element, it, two elements, it's, it's bread and wine. Just take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine and eat it. And, and it's symbolically sort of um, an affirmation that what Jesus did was for me. It's for us, and it makes us whole. And then think about how you can do this in your life for the people around you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for the Matthean community. Thank you for their, their brilliance and their ability to write and compile this, uh, this book for us. Thank you for the great pastor Matthew who, who taught and led them well who knew you and who failed you and succeeded sometimes and failed other times. And it's all a beautiful picture of, of who you are. Thank you for choosing us. Um, use us to be a blessing to the world around us, to our city, to our town. Let our, let our evangelistic ways be not just in word. Um, let them be in deed. Let them see Jesus through, through our own actions. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.